0: Hey, what's up? So, avalanche. Let's talk about it. What's, what's an avalanche? The snow comes down real fast, fierce, gains momentum. But I'm not talking about the natural of disaster, or if it's not really a disaster, I guess, if no one's around. But anyways, avalanche. What is it? You've heard about it. Now you're gonna hear some more. It's an open source platform for launching decentralized finance applications, right? DeFi. That's What you want. Developers who build on Avalanche can easily create powerful, reliable, secure applications and custom blockchain networks with complex rule sets or build an existing private or public subnet. Right. I think what you should do right now is stop what you're doing, even if it's listening to this podcast. Stop. Pull over. Go to the gas station if you need to. Go to a subway. There's a subway like everywhere. There's always a subway, all right. All right. There's always a Kroger. Just stop in a parking lot somewhere. All right. And go to uh, the dogs are adamant that you stop. Go to alvalabs.org Avalab, to learn more. All right. Stop. Go to avalabs. That's a v a labs l a b s
1: Now entering the
2: Bitcoin
1: Podcast Network. Welcome to Hashing It Out, a podcast where we talk to the tech innovators behind blockchain infrastructure and decentralized networks. We dive into the weeds to get at why and how people build this technology and the problems they face along the way. Come listen and learn from the best in the business so you can join their ranks. Welcome back to Hashing It Out. I'm your host, Dr. Corey Petty, with my co-host, Dean Eigenman. Today's episode, we're going to be talking with Core Scientific. Recently had a podcast with them um, over on the Bitcoin podcast with a different person from the company, and we wanted to get a little more technical. Uh, So we brought over Ian Ferreira from Chief, the Chief Product Officer of Core Scientific. Uh, Ian, do the standard thing and kind of tell us uh, what you do, where you came from, and how you joined the space.
3: Hey, good morning. Uh, Yes, I'm Ian Ferreira. I'm Chief Product Officer at Core Scientific. Uh, I've been with Core Scientific uh, approaching two years now. Um, Before that, I bounced around a couple of other machine learning startups and uh, spent a decade at Microsoft working in the search team. So I've been around the algorithms and big data distributed system space my entire career, uh, mostly.
1: What do you do now? Like what kind of brought you to Core Scientific and what do you do there?
3: So uh, Core Scientific was interesting for a couple of reasons. One is I definitely wanted to focus on AI. So that was one of my criterion. Uh, The second was it's a very different approach. So A lot of companies, if you go and work in an AI role, you're going to start from business problems downwards and kind of make your way to, you know, let's say TensorFlow, kind of that, you know, TensorFlow, PyTorch layer up the stack. Um, And what was unique about Core Scientific is we were starting from the bottom. So we were starting from concrete, power, TDP, chipsets, you know, understanding interconnect. So it's really an opportunity to get, the the under-the-hood experience, if you will, the uh, hardware experience, if you will, of AI, and then work your way up so that once you've done that, you have a full picture of everything from, okay, this is going to use this library that's going to take advantage of this silicon feature that's going to be accelerated by this hardware infrastructure and blah, blah, blah. So it just gave me a really uh, unique opportunity to work from the bottom up.
1: That's really interesting. So you're like, because... Uh, for those that don't know, Core Scientific is, um, I guess, you boast yourselves as a infrastructure company, uh, mm-hmm. providing a lot of resources for people to do a myriad of things that need compute power. Part of that being um, mining different, various yep. cryptocurrencies, as yep. well as like machine learning and so on and so forth and AI. Uh, it's interesting that you you take it from uh, these are the resources that we have. And these are the architectures that maybe fit to these different types of uh, algorithms that are applied across the board. Uh, what is that like given that perspective, like how do you how do you approach a problem? And what is that kind of what have you learned from that?
3: Yeah. So um, as you mentioned, Core Scientific provides uh, hosting and infrastructure as well as software services for the two primary categories. One is blockchain and the other AI. On the blockchain side, we're you know lower down the stacks, you know, somewhere between data center as a service and infrastructure as a service, where we host. Uh, mining gear for customers, and then on the AI side, we much higher up the stack. So we're pretty much a, a PaaS platform as a service, um, and we'll talk about that some more later. But those are the kind of the two differences, and then we have uh, you know some synergies between the two. If you start at the facilities level, you now the common thing with with, with crypto and an AI gear is high heat, high power. So our facilities are typically much higher rated um, than you would find in a traditional data center. Um, and the other aspects is around controlling heat. Um, and so making sure you can deal with these machines that don't fit in normal standard racks that you might be used to. Um, so that's the infrastructure tier. Um, and then we do a couple of things around um uh, using algorithms around a workload placement. We do that both in AI and on blockchain. Um, So as you can imagine, if you look at uh, on the blockchain side, a very common workload that you might want to figure out what's the optimal coin to mine. right? So how do you do that? You have to figure out a bunch of algorithms and ingredients to make a decision what to mine. And we can we can talk a little bit more about how that works. And the same thing on the AI side, you might want to run a large training job, um, and you might want to know, is this better to run on Azure? Is it better to run on our infrastructure core? Is it better to run on AWS? Because again, you have the same equations. There's a cost, and there's a a compute uh, capability, and you have to figure out what's the optimal uh, for the customer's needs. So that's kind of the software overlap that we have between the two verticals.
2: That makes sense. You kind of just answered my, or partially answered my next question, which was, um, mm-hmm. why why blockchain and AI? It seems like two very abstract different things. Why why not focus on one? Why did you guys decide to do both of them? Was there that much overlap that it made sense? Or,
3: Yeah, no, it's a great question. I think uh, the company started before CEO Kevin Turner joined Uh, The company was primarily focused on blockchain infrastructure. And I think he saw the opportunity to expand into AI because of that similarity. Um, And, you know, we've, you know, our AI business is much more nascent than blockchain, but we've uh, grown pretty substantially. Um, And as I mentioned, we've gone much higher up the stack. Um, You know, the giving people this cloud experience to gain access to this infrastructure this is on the blockchain side, which is more of an IS or, or data center as a service where we're managing the infrastructure for customers.
2: Do you, do you Are there any use cases where you use, let's say, the one vertical in the other? For example, is there a use case for some of your blockchain or for some of your AI infrastructure in mm-hmm. uh, your blockchain product? Or are they yeah. completely orthogonal?
3: no that's a great question uh absolutely so going back to the earlier you know workload placement optimization uh, in the case of blockchain the workload could be you know which cryptocurrency are you mining and we have something called deep mine which is a ml based uh recommendation engine which would tell the customers they can opt in to use it if they wanted to it'll tell them hey Based on a couple of signals, which we can dig into later, uh, we recommend that the most profitable coin for you to mine right now is X. And then we could automatically, using our infrastructure, switch their entire fleet over to that coin. And we do that every 30 minutes. We calculate the profitability, um, and uh, and those are based on AI models. Um, I think the, the most natural fit for blockchain into AI, so the reverse of that, is around um, IoT. So if you look at the massive amounts of data that's being collected on the edge, uh, it's a high-volume, low-value data. And so being able to put that on an immutable storage uh, is critical for AI. So you can retrain models, reproduce results, um, and I think that's where, at least in my mind, I see the overlap of, of blockchain providing utility to AI.
1: Oh, so you're saying that the data ingestion of a lot of these IoT devices going into some blockchain is a storage storage mechanism. Is that, is that right?
3: Correct. Correct. Because you need low-value a... immutable storage, but you need a lot of it. Because it might be temperature sensors, and so one reading getting lost is not the end of the world, but you do want to make, but you're going to have a ton of readings and from a ton of places. So you need a distributed, um, you know, immutable storage for sensor data. And the helps scientists reproduce results. So you don't have to worry about temperatures being jipped out after the fact. Frank's
1: disadvantage of that. Um, I understand the concept there, but a disadvantage of trying to pump a bunch of data into a blockchain is state bloat. If you look at, um, one of the current, I guess, bottlenecks of the Ethereum network, it's, um, how much state management currently exists and how much you have to kind of, uh, get through in order to just become a running full node across the network. And if you'd like to run something like an archive node, which handles all historical uh, data, um, then it's, it becomes severely limiting in terms of the resources required to run these things. And yeah. that's just dealing with, like, you know, smart contract data and financial data where you're really spending a lot of time optimizing what you're putting there. When you start mm-hmm. dumping a bunch of stuff like IoT data, that's going to get exacerbated terribly. Uh, so I'd imagine something along the lines of, like, using a blockchain for immutability, but storing a good portion of that data elsewhere and hashing it. Um, so you have, like, you're rooting. You're rooting your immutability in something like a blockchain, but I don't think you can scale real IoT data on a on a blockchain. In my opinion,
3: yeah, no, it's um, and and again, this is the, the ailment of both blockchain and AI. They're such uh, I use the expression "suitcase words." They mean so many things. I would absolutely agree that putting that on Ethereum or or the Bitcoin network is an overkill. Um, they have much higher primitives and capabilities that won't be needed. And, um, you know, arguably having to generate consensus across this type of data shouldn't be such, such mission critical or so mission critical um, compared to other use cases. But there's two ways to solve that. One is to dial down the tolerance of consensus to use a simplified ledger. The other is, as you mentioned, to keep the transactional aspects in a distributed ledger but keep the storage elsewhere. Either way, as long as you know the the, quote-unquote off-the-chain deployments, as long as you're able to reasonably control the data um, uh, and be able to account for the origins, I think there's still utility there.
1: That makes sense. I think I want to kind of dive a little more into what you said like as the the underlying use case. What is the issue with... uh... Uh, I mean, I guess this, this also dovetails into something I wanted to talk about uh, later is like when you're dealing with machine learning and AI data, the data that you're ingesting is incredibly important. It's mm-hmm. the whole mentality of garbage in garbage out. You can create models mm-hmm. on, on data all day long, but if the, uh, if what you're trying to get out of it and the data you're feeding into it don't, aren't reconciled very well, you're going to get shit models that don't give you any mm-hmm. predict- predicting power. Um and so you would, what you're looking for, at least uh, trying to leverage this other technology, is a way to have stronger confidence in the quality of the data bef- mm-hmm. that you're ingesting.
0: Yeah, it's absolutely. Kind of,
1: uh, like universal to the machine learning industry. Like is, is, is the oracles, I guess you can call these oracles, a, a severe problem?
3: Yeah, I mean, uh, you nailed it. And it's no different from, from human minds. Uh, you're a function of whatever data you're exposed to. So same thing with neural networks. If you have uh, data sets that are skewed or you have class imbalance problems, then your predictive models will uh, produce those same problems. Um, and so it's important to have stable data sets that have been curated and publicly available uh, distributed so you don't have to move large amount of data around the world and, and stable they they need to be immutable so that you can reproduce results um, if if you have cha- concerns that the data sets might be drifting then it would be really difficult to reproduce results and, and be able to do hyperparameter tuning on your models so yeah I mean that's that's the use case I see uh, for blockchain in AI Um and like I said, the reverse, obviously, we spoke about more.
2: So, so I had a quick question based on something you said previously, in one of the first answers when I asked you, which was related to, you said that you guys every 30 minutes will check which cryptocurrency is the most profitable to profitable to mine yeah. um, and then switch to that one. With me, with... Maybe this is because I'm a bit naive on mining and everything with me, all this software that does that has always seemed like I feel like the switching and overhead costs are way higher than the benefit is of actually switching. Like, what are the actual costs associated with switching? And does it still make that much sense to consistently be switching between which cryptocurrency you're mining?
3: Yeah, no, that's a great question. And, and you're absolutely right. There is a opportunity cost involved in switching and that needs to be modeled into your parameters. It's it's actually more perplexing than folks think. It could be anywhere from how you actually switch the mining and if that incurs, down, incurs downtime on the machines, right? So you might lose hash rate for a couple of seconds that needs to be modeled in. Um, you also need to model in uh, the ability to liquidate uh, the orders on the exchange side. So I think your point is 100% accurate that if not done correctly, you might actually end up hurting yourself more than helping yourself. Um, but if you do it correctly, you can factor all those parameters in and still make a decision that makes sense from a financial point of view. Uh, we've been running this um, you know since I've been here and um, you know we've seen pretty substantial lift. Uh, we're only switching between three coins right now, so BCH, BSV, and BTC. Um, we did explore PPC uh, at one point, uh, but it has so much hair around um, consensus and and getting confirmed blocks that we we jettison uh, mining with that. But those are the three we switch between, um, and you know, truth be told, a lot of the opportunities between those really come uh, in the Uh, the fact that Bitcoin has obviously a two-week difficulty variance and then the other coins have, you know, almost transaction-based. So that creates these gaps between um, a slow difficulty change uh, on Bitcoin and a very dynamic difficulty change between the other two coins. Um, And that creates these spreads that if you're smart, you can take advantage of.
1: That makes sense as to why you try and... Um, start with those because you have very specific mining hardware that mm-hmm. um and 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 then the underlying algorithms that take advantage of that hardware are, yeah. are pretty one-to-one mapping they're not a lot of variants across the different different chains um, right. and then you have the, what you, so like you have a and then you have kind of this large variance across how difficulty changes across these networks and i guess associated price fluctuations so like mm-hmm. training on that alone makes sense whereas trying to bring in other things like Ethereum GPU based Mm -hmm. mining across the board, which is a myriad of other coins uh, Mm -hmm. drastically increases the amount of things you have to ingest and and make decisions on.
3: Correct. Correct.
1: Uh, Go ahead. Is that something y'all are looking into getting into? Because I know you do more than ASIC mining at at, at Core Scientific.
3: Yeah. So most of our fleet is ASIC, you know, SHA-256 based gear. Uh, We do have GPU uh, customers that have GPU gear. Um, but you you know you hit the nail on the head the once you go into GPU and you start switching algorithms it you know you change the uh, power consumption of the gear. um these coins have some of them have such low liquidity that it's really hard to you know you might make a <laughs> a calculation that said coin is the most profitable. And then when you try and go and clear an order on or an exchange, you can't get enough buyers. And so, it, you know, we're trying to stay away from some of the fringe exchanges. Um, and we're trying to focus on coins that we believe have enough liquidity uh, to be able to do the actual uh, liquidation as well as just switching. Um, the, you know, on the GPU side, there's a ton more different coins, you um, and, you know, but they, I don't feel there's the same gravitas around a certain, a few coins on the GPU side that's worth exploring. But we have looked at it to answer your question. We've definitely looked at it. And our algorithms can consume these signals. Um, but like I said, the majority of our fleet is shot to 560.
1: That's kind of my next question is like, um, what all like the, 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 the types of things that you are ingesting? as signals for these things to make decisions on. Like it seems like as a, and this was mentioned earlier in the, in the Bitcoin podcast episode, like mm-hmm. all the way down from computational power, uh, energy price, uh, market signals, uh, social data, so on and so forth. Like there's a tremendous amount of things you can ingest. What are you, what are you seeing as like uh, mm-hmm. the most useful mm-hmm. ingestion indicators for f- figuring these things out?
3: Yeah, I wish I, I wish I could tell you some uh, super interesting story of you know it's tied correlated with you know the amount of blah blah blah. You know, it's the reality is that uh, we we do look at a lot of signals, but you know the good old trade volume is still one of the strongest drivers um, in terms of a feature in predicting price. Um, the you know we look at our first party signals. Obviously, managing a fleet. Uh, the size of what we do gives us a ton of direct signals, as you mentioned, for cost uh, on the cost side with power. Um, and um, and then we look at some third party signals, obviously exchange prices um, and uh, difficulty block rewards, you know, the usual ingredients you would put in place to calculate profitability. But to answer your question, you know, at least in our experience, one of the largest Uh, You know, if you do the principal component analysis, the biggest contributor to our forecasting is really trade volume. There's some macro trends like the rainy season in southwest China that does play a role, uh, but we we don't model that in our models. We just kind of do that as an overarching uh, adjustment. So I
2: guess. You mentioned predictions and like a lot, I mean, it's quite popular, a popular opinion that crypto is volatile and um, not very rational. Does Mm -hmm. that, so like judging by your models and your predictions, do you agree with that statement? Like, can you actually predict things reliably enough? The, based on these inputs that you're taking, which, as you said, is like volume and stuff, are these actually good indicators of how the price will be affected in the future?
1: Like I guess, yeah, so. I guess mean, so, like, like, what's the time horizon of those predictions? Because those, those yeah. are going to get worse and worse as, as you go, like, as you go further and further into the future.
3: Correct. So, if you guys, if your audience uh, could see me, they'll see the gray hair from trying to predict uh, cryptocurrencies. Yes, it is completely. Uh, you know, it we you know the the predictions we do are short term, um, and that allows us to mostly try and forecast whether we believe we're on an upward trend on a currency or a downward trend, and we use that to set the order floor prices. So if we believe the Bitcoin is going up, we're going to try and increase our uh, clearing prices on the exchange to just above ask, so we can kind of step up. If we think the reverse, obviously we go slightly below. Um, but that is, but that's about a seven day out forecast, uh, two to seven day outs. Once you try and go further, it's it's you know almost you know crazy town. It's it, there's so many weird factors that drive the price, and you know you just can't get signals around some of these. Some giant whale goes and sells a lot of Bitcoin. You know the signal you get a trade volume but you don't get anything ahead of that. So um, if you do a short enough prediction, um, I think you can still get utility out of it. But, you know, we've tried to run models out further into the future and it's pretty difficult to get a good read.
1: Pretty, with that being said, like, how do you see uh, the marriage of... Maybe I guess cryptocurrency trading or prognostication of price um, evolving over time. Uh, where do you see it going? Do you see it going into like incorporating uh, more and more assets? Do you see it in trying to like, narrow down different sources, better machine learning techniques, uh, better computation for like um, training models faster? Like, I, I, what, what do you see like the like when you think about the advancement of machine learning and AI mm-hmm. as it pertains to the work that you use it for? Mm -hmm. what's the next like what are you excited about
3: yeah so so real quick on the blockchain side and then i'll switch to just pure play ai so on on the blockchain side i think um you know the one approach is to go after more signals but again i think there's some uh events that impact the pricing that you won't have signals to unless you somehow were able to see into the minds of somebody that decides to drop a bunch of coin on the marketplace um so you know i think there it's really about the coins themselves stabilizing and becoming less less volatile which they're going to have to do anyway if they want to you know be a quote-unquote fiscal currency um on the on the uh, pure play ai side i think um the sky is the limit i mean we've we've obviously worked with netapp and nvidia on COVID 19 research um you know ai to go back to my earlier comment, AI is a, is a suitcase term, so it means a lot. So, you know, you could, you could consider AI to be anything from a simple linear regression in a spreadsheet, which a lot of companies are doing when they do sales forecasts. <laughs> and then you yeah. can go slightly more complicated and say, okay, deep learning. Uh, and the two primary use cases there are um, computer vision and natural language processing um on the computer vision side we're seeing a lot of companies uh use that from any anything in the life sciences we see uh computational pathology uh where you're using machine learning models computer vision to diagnose um we're seeing manufacturing defect detection uh we're seeing loss loss prevention um you know the <laughs> Most recent, uh, uh, we're working with this company in Europe. Most recent use case, which I thought was pretty interesting, is, and apparently it, it hasn't hit the U.S. yet, so I don't want to give people ideas. But in Europe, they're stealing these small ATMs that you find in like a 7-Eleven. And so the way they do it, they drill little holes into these, you know, self-enclosed units, and then they inject some sort of gas into it. And then they ignite this gas, and that's basically how you crack open these the, these ATM boxes. And so what these guys, this uh, company is doing, they're basically detecting these canisters. And so whenever they see somebody in the ATM camera and they see these canisters come out, they you know notify the police. So um, you know <laughs> there's a very interesting use cases for pattern recognition uh, in computer vision. Um, And then, obviously, you have uh, the slew of other use cases, anywhere from crowd control, uh, social distancing uh, on the computer vision side. Uh, Natural language processing is probably the next biggest. Um, There's a lot of innovation happening there. It's much larger models being trained. Uh, So you think about BERT, GPT-2. And... That, those use cases are from a robotic process automation, chatbots. So whenever you interact with the chatbots, that's natural language processing. It uses a language model to figure out how to speak back to you. Um, there's also obviously the uh, call centers. Uh, we're working with a customer that is doing enormous amount of speech to text. And what they're trying to do is when you call into a call center, um, they want to listen to the customer conversation and say, oh, this is a conversation about XYZ and then be able to do AI models to come up with re- recommendations for the for the call center person to say, oh, if the customer is talking about this device, then these are some of the issues we've seen before, right? So really uh, helping uh, close, that, close that knowledge gap, if you will, on the call center side. Um, so those are, you know, kind of the three big blocks. When you look at what people think of as AI is the, you know, Cyberdyne, Terminator, uh, completely autonomous uh, entity. I think those uh, it's referred to as general artificial intelligence. I have not seen that.
1: <laughs> uh, eh, not for a while.
3: <laughs> Got a while for
1: that one. <laughs>
3: right. And uh, if that's what you mean with AI adoption, then it's very low. If, if the other two categories is what you mean with AI, then I think it's pretty ubiquitous. Um, and, um, and it's, you know, it's being woven into a lot of software. Like if, if you look at your office, uh, suites or spreadsheets, they all now have little widgets that help you with, Oh, are you trying to do X, Y, or Z? Or, Hey, we think you're trying to write a letter. Do you want to blah, blah, blah. So that's all effectively AI or machine learning.
1: You know, something that, uh, I think a lot of people don't quite understand about that even further than the differentiation you just made uh, is the fact that these models are trained, um, and then compacted in a way, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and then and then they live on the client side, so that they're not like when you do, or at least for some of these things, like think about like uh, so maybe some of the, the the text recommendation for your chat or uh, how your Siri talks to you, things like this. So a lot of the times, the actual processing and recommendation is happening locally on your client and not communicating with some central server that's then doing it and sending it back to you uh, mm-hmm. and that's I think a big part of the push or innovation in recent machine learning and, and, and AI is is getting these things to be useful in such a compact size that they can be done on mobile devices and so on and so forth is that am I interpreting that correctly
3: yeah absolutely and and that's the other pivot of of quote unquote AI machine learning, there's the model training aspect, which is where you need the big I N devices, GPUs, lots of power, lots of data, lots of crunch crunching numbers, and then they produce a you know let's take an ImageNet, 180 gigabytes of images, and it maybe produces a model that's you know 10 megabytes, um, and. That, and that 10 megabytes model then needs to be deployed on the inferencing side or the edge side, which is where most of the real-world applications happen. So you're right. If, if it's a chat bot, the model was trained uh, in one facility on one set of hardware, but when you're actually chatting, you, you're talking to the inferencing side of it. And, and you're right. To run that on the edge, it needs to be compacted, uh, quantitized, as they say, where you reduce the... Um, Uh, precision of the weights of the model to get it to fit on smaller gear. Um, And, you know, you're looking at different hardware, you're looking at potentially FPGA accelerators versus general purpose GPUs on the training side. Um, But you're right right on. That's, that's another key that, uh, um, that, AI is maturing is that it's moving away from lab projects, which is mostly training model and testing accuracy of the said models to actually production deployments where you actually put these, these models into work. Um, and in those cases, it's all about inferencing. It's all about the edge.
1: Is there something that you're most interested in across? Like, it's like, like you said, like AI is a suitcase term. It's an incredibly broad, uh, spectrum of like very very deep specialities like similar like like web development or data scientists or you know what have you what other suitcase term that's associated with the same type of stuff is there something that you're specifically interested in Mm -hmm.
3: yeah and you know that i think there's kind of two schools of thought the one is that ai eventually replaces about a lot of what we do but i think A long time before that happens, it will enhance what we do. And this could be anything from, um, you know, going back to my Terminator references, and no, I'm not a Terminator fanboy, or maybe I am, I guess. (laughs) uh, If you recall when they showed how the computer was looking at stuff, how it had all these hints show up. So imagine a world where you have Wikipedia at your you know, wish, beg and call. And whenever you look at something, it gets recognized and you can look at a car and it'll tell you the model and you can see all that. So it's this this, uh, concept of uh, augmenting what we do, not replacing what we do. Or if a doctor is doing surgery, they have all these KPIs, almost like a heads-up display available to them. Or if you're working in medicine, um, our ability as humans to recognize patterns is phenomenal but the amount of data that's needed these days, you know, uh, AI is just great at recognizing patterns that, you know, if you look at the work that Google's doing with DeepMind and other spaces where they can look at an iris scan and diagnose diseases, which, you know, is phenomenal that these signals exist. Uh, we just weren't able to recognize these patterns. So I think AI is going to help a lot um, by making us as humans better, stronger, faster. Um, and then, you know, there will be, I think, quote unquote, jobs that that AI will subsume as it gets smarter and more a general purpose. But, you know, I don't know if that's in our lifetimes or our kids' lifetimes, but what I do know will be in our lifetimes is AI that makes us better and makes us more efficient and helps us understand stuff deeper and, and more thoughtful.
1: I definitely see that and, and, and agree with it quite a bit. Uh, mm-hmm. And what I'm kind of seeing here that that's I would call that a marriage of like if I think about the current exponential technologies that um, are in our hands it's mm-hmm. that's more of a marriage with uh, machine learning AI with uh, our like, um, like uh, what's it, augmented reality and virtual reality Yeah, so exactly like that we yep. can
2: yeah.
1: and so and because of that, do you see those two like there's an obvious connection between um, those two technologies and how they kind of work well together. And then when you start to then bring that back into what we're trying to do in the blockchain space, it, it's, it's kind of trying, I guess, preventing the dystopian um, manipulation of that world once it exists. So mm-hmm. like say if you were to try imagine a world in which you have, um, a good portion of how you view the world and make decisions and interpret things is done through mm-hmm. the assistance of some type of augmented reality that is mm-hmm. taking advantage or taking advantage of a lot of um, machine learning algorithms mm-hmm. that are that are, that are mm-hmm. placed in whatever software you're using. Right? Uh, mm-hmm. How those things get created and how they ingest data and then how they kind of feed it to you um, are all kind of entry points into manipulation. In oh, yeah. some way, shape or form. Uh, and so like I feel as though like a potential use case for whatever we're trying to do in the blockchain space is trying to give stronger guarantees around that data, whether it be what you're using to train the underlying model or, or um I guess the methodologies in which you like absorb mm-hmm. or, or, or or give out whatever whatever it's doing. Is that is that a reasonable aspect? Like, is that kind of what you were talking about earlier in terms of mm-hmm. we need to have real strong guarantees about the data we're using to do these things? Because uh, I, uh, when I was talking on, on the Bitcoin podcasts, uh, mm-hmm. we were discussing the importance of price data and the feeds that you're that you're ingesting into uh, kind of right. what coins at what price and the historical things over time uh, that inform you on what to then mine and make decisions on. Um, mm-hmm. And that's a very important thing that cannot be manipulated if you're going to make a good decision. At that, alike. Yeah. So that's the kind of the underlying Oracle issue that kind of comes up. But if we just expand that across the board, um, having very good data is a very important thing. And how that data gets um, stored, verified, and then moved to the things that are actually going to use it is incredibly important. I think that's where blockchain maybe comes into play.
3: Yeah, no, absolutely. That's, that's, so if you imagine um, going back to that augmented reality or um, um the, the the because uh, machine learning can learn patterns so fast. You're absolutely right. If you have broad application of the in, of this augmented reality or uh, b- ability to augment what we do or how we understand things, and all of a sudden you have a lot of people running on models that were biased one way or the other. I mean, it's 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 pretty dangerous in a way that uh, you could have broad biases be replicating out by models that were trained on bad data and it will be so woven into what we do it'll be hard to detect Um, you know one of my favorite books uh, to plug is the thinking fast and slow Um, and it talks about uh, human mind's ability to almost not be able to distinguish truth as long as it's ubiquitous so basically if Doesn't matter how crazy an idea is, if you have enough social uh, affirmation of that concept, you would experience it as full on truth. And so go take that with biased models, and you really create this short circuit where, um, you know, you could have really things go really haywire. And so, because of that, I think models are going to become almost like uh, crypto keys or stuff that get managed and trained by groups that have made sure that the the models, the the classes are balanced within the models, uh, and if you do have models that are doing inferencing on on live data, uh, there's a lot of technologies that look at it's called data drift, where you're just making sure that your incoming data sets aren't varying so much from the stuff that was trained on that you're going to start making you know pretty much random random predictions. So. Uh, yeah, it's it's garbage in garbage out on steroids with with, with machine learning. So you have to be very careful.
2: Hmm. That's really interesting. Mm-hmm. So you mentioned the sharing of models and models would be managed by a group of people. Mm-hmm. Is, is there already examples of this happening? Like open sourcing AI models?
3: Yeah. Is yeah. that a thing already? Yeah, absolutely. So... Um, most of the big models are either trained by academia or some of the large companies. So if you look at, um, you know, the first, you know, major natural language processing model, ELMo, that was trained by uh, the Allen Institute. Uh, BERT uh, was trained by uh, Google, GPT, um, and Microsoft did a new one, the Transformer model. That's the largest model. So, And these models are shared. And then what most practitioners do is they, um, they then go ahead and um, tune these models. Very few companies actually take – or ImageNet, which is a famous uh, computer vision model. Very few companies start from scratch. They usually take one of these models and what's called tune it, fine-tune it, where you saying, okay, this model knows how to detect visual objects but maybe it doesn't know how to detect you know a boat for example just making this up and so you can then tweak that model slightly to be able to learn to detect boats um and so yes to answer your question a lot of the bigger models for you know power and consumption and cost reasons are done by a few companies or academia but then they're used by a lot more uh you know general purpose folks uh, out in the field and so in a way that's already happening um, but you can imagine that that's just going to get more and more and more ubiquitous as new types of models, new patterns need to be recognized, comes along.
1: So off the wall, uh maybe like five years ago, um, I published <laughs> a paper in um, Quantum Computing about, well, not Quantum Computing, but Quantum, quantum Dynamics Calculations, working with <laughs> some uh, like modeling quantum mechanics on classical computers. And I had adapted um, neural networks to uh, be used as a computationally efficient interpolation system. Mm-hmm. So like, I guess like, just to give a, a, bit, a quick prefix, there's these incredibly large, complex, uh, multivariate services that are required for these types of calculations on supercomputers, right? Mm-hmm. And every time you evaluate one of these functions that has a lot of variables in it, it takes uh, a significant amount of time. In order to do the calculations, these things need to be, um, these functions need to be evaluated millions of times. Right. Uh, right. And they become somewhat of a limiting factor in how long it takes you to get the job complete on, on these supercomputers, which is incredibly expensive. Uh, and the goal of the paper was to use mach- machine learning, specifically uh, neural networks, to um, create a, um, what's we're what looking for? Basically, a computational efficient function that uh, gets evaluated very, very quickly based on the large the large surfaces. Is that mm-hmm. something you see uh, in the ecosystem and in other ways, like using neural networks as uh, interpolation engines as opposed to trying to prognosticate based on uh, some corpus of data?
3: Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's tractable that we get more adoption. Uh, I think... If you look at at the state of some of the model architectures, I mean, we're still seeing uh, new model architectures come out. And so I think we're far from having dialed in exactly what the the best activation function is or what the best uh, architecture is and should you do recurrent or convolutional or combination or, you know. So I, I think there's a lot. Uh, we can still learn, um, and then a lo- lot of new applications uh, for neural networks, um, the I, you know, I think as we as we get uh, more real world applications, I think it's going to require different ways of thinking of models. You know, the one thing that was quite interesting, uh, speaking of an out of the box use case, was um this rice university did a hash based implementation of deep neural nets called slide s-l-i-d-e um and they basically deviated from jeffrey hinton's back propagation approach to figure out uh, the weights uh, of a neural net um and so that was a completely different approach um it doesn't require gpus it doesn't do a lot of matrix multiplication instead it does a lot of hash table lookups. Um, and you. Would, I can imagine that with the innovation in hardware and in new network architectures, that, you know, things are going to get, uh, you know, we'll be in five years' time, we'll be looking back at some of these models and go, "How? Oh, remember when we used to use ImageNet or ConfNets, how, you know, how primitive those were, uh, this is what we're doing today. So, yeah, I think there's definitely going to be new use cases that, that come out.
1: That's about, and I, I could probably talk about this for a while, but uh, without diving or going down too many tangents, is there are there any questions that uh, you wished I would have asked that I didn't?
3: Um, no, I think you guys did did great. I mean, um, I'm really excited with with the AI space. I think it is a transformational technology. It's uh, Andrew Ng. Uh, said it's like electricity and I believe that it it's gonna be transformational it's gonna be in everything we do in one shape or form um, it's gonna be very powerful which means it could be used for good and bad so we're gonna have to keep tabs on it just like you do with any technology um, and I think it's gonna it's gonna help us some solve some challenging problems it you know if you if you look at the pace at which AI can learn versus the pace at which we've learned. Um, I actually wrote an article, uh, a blog post on this, but, you know, if you look at how evolution allows you to learn and how you could only learn through lineage and now we, then we started writing. And so you could share stuff between folks and other people and learn and have memories of, Oh, you know, don't stick your hand in a lion's mouth because it'll bite it. Okay. That becomes (laughs) something that you've learned uh, from trial and error, but with, with deep learning, we can continuously learn and so, you know, that, that in and of itself is amazing of what we'll be able to do uh, by having it just continuously learning, 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 observing, recognizing new patterns. Uh, so I'm really excited about AI, which is why I work in this field. I'm excited about what role core plays in, in empowering data scientists to solve these problems. Um, and so, yeah. I mean, I think you guys uh, did a good job. Is there anything else you would want to ask or want me to dig in more um, uh, for your audience, Dean?
2: Um, I mean, I th- there's so many stupid questions I could ask about AI because I'm genuinely interested in the field, but um, don't know much about it. And well, then realize-
1: be the stupid audience member and ask those questions.
2: Okay. <laughs> So let's start with the with the one which is uh, like recent GPT three, right? What's the big mm-hmm. deal? So when when you get to these
3: language models, um, it's you know really it's it's called embedding word embeddings. Um, it's trying to learn the relationship between things in an almost multi dimensional graph, and so typically whether it's BERT, GPT two GPT three, Elmo. The is there is just on how many parameters you've trained. Yeah. Um, if you look at the brain, I think it's 100 billion synapses. So think of those as parameters. And so uh, GPT-3 is just a very, very large <laughs> model that was trained. And so the conjecture is the more parameters, the more complex your model is, the more um, advanced it could be in detecting, in this case, language models. Um, yeah so that that's basically the the thesis around around these um natural language processing models so bigger is
2: better yep is gpt3 the most advanced one right now um I think
3: GP, I'm not actually, I'm not sure whether there's one that Microsoft recently did uh, T something, I can't remember the acronym, but they did a transformer based model and I'm not sure if GPT-3 is actually larger than that, Okay. Um, but you could just look up the number of parameters. Like I said, the reason this is limited to these big companies is really who has access to that much computational power um, to be able to train these models. Um, but yeah, it, it's it's a toss up between GPT three and TPA or something.
2: I can't remember what Microsoft's one's called. Then I'm ki- I'm kind of surprised that like the model GPT three came out of OpenAI, right? Which is like that's um, mm-hmm. the Elon Musk company, I think, right? Correct. Yes, I'm I'm kind of surprised that stuff like that, like is Google doing open source stuff like this because. You'd think they have the, both the computational power and the data sets required to get something equally, if not better, off the ground.
3: Yeah, no, they, they did. Um, I think GPT-2 was done by Google, if I'm not mistaken. Um, oh, okay. Yeah. they. So, you know, the like the language models, they all have um, funny names, Elmo, Bert, GPT-2, GPT-3, and then Microsoft's one, which for the life of me I can't remember. Um, uh, so yeah, they they do come out of either academia or or a non non OpenAI, I believe, trained their model on Microsoft's Azure infrastructure because um, Microsoft yeah. invested a, a good portion of of uh, infrastructure into OpenAI. But yeah, these these are great. Great for natural language processing, and it's it's funny we've kind of stopped innovating much on computer vision. I think people feel that that's at a, a reasonable place, um, and now everybody is innovating on natural language processing models. Um, and you know, I think what will happen is we will learn about new uh, approaches that we might circle back and go apply on computer vision again. Um, and so, yeah, I think this is going to continue to, we're going to continue with new uh, architectures and um, and finding ways to shrink them down to run on edge devices.
1: To that end, it seems really important to have people like you at infrastructure companies trying to uh, figure out like what power, computation, devices, architectures do we have available to trade these various things and where are they most efficient? Like, Like, like you said, like, people can't do these things unless they have access to a specific amount of resources to do it. Mm -hmm. Um, And, or, or uh, if those resources are even available, broadcasting to the people who would like to do them. And without someone like you in your position, it's really hard to make, to bridge that gap. Are you seeing um, your competitors, other people uh, who provide these resources, hire uh, people who are interested in machine learning Research, or is it just part of the deal? Like, you don't run a company like that unless you have someone like you involved.
3: Um, well, to the first part of your statement, absolutely true. You know, the, the example that comes to mind is we did uh, um, an initiative with uh, MIT, and one of their researchers trained uh, what's called the Big GAN, the uh, Generative Adversarial Network, on our infrastructure. And that was the first time somebody trained that network uh, outside of Google. Uh, so absolutely, our goal is to help bring this capability to to all data scientists, um, and um, and uh, yeah, we, we want it to be democratized uh, to make sure that everybody can can have access to this infrastructure in one shape or form. It is actually much harder to manage than you than traditional you know Dell servers ex- example. Um, and so there is an expertise around managing that, around sharing them, making use of them. The, the worst cardinal sin you could do is, is buy these expensive infrastructure machines, these servers, and then not be able to utilize them and have you know, idle GPUs or 15% utilization, uh, especially since you paid such a hefty price for them. So we make sure that people can utilize their infrastructure the best possible way.
1: It makes a lot of sense. It, it 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 reminds it sends me back in almost PTSD of handling uh, job queues on supercomputers <laughs> for scientific applications. It's like there's yeah, so much exactly. computing power not being used right now.
3: Like what's going on? Mm-hmm. Right, exactly. It's brutal. You know the the this uh, this researcher made a comment. You know, the The challenge, of course, is unless you have fully accelerated fabric, right? Everything from storage to networking to the the you know whether you use NVLink, NVSwitch or PCIe Express, that whole pipeline of getting data onto that silicon on the GPU has to be accelerated, or you're going to end up with underutilized infrastructure. And you know you you have 10 percent underutilized GPU that adds up a lot. Uh, and so with our with our uh, software called Plexus, when you run a workload, um, it will make a recommendation to you to make sure you're not going to run on GPUs that are going to be half utilized, and you're going to pay an arm and a leg for on a public cloud provider, for example, it will it will right size the infrastructure for you to make sure that you're not overpaying, and or if you run a job, it'll tell you, listen, you have ample CPU cycles to spare, you know, maybe consider moving some of the compute onto the CPU. So just you know, to the meta point of how do you ma- maximize your investment and make sure you don't have idle cycles. Because these, these you know, as as amazing as they are, NVIDIA releases a new GPU architecture every two years. And so you need to make sure you get the most out of that. And that's, you know, that's something that the the mining folks know a lot of. (laughs) You know, (laughs) uh, when I started with Core, S9s were all the rage. And um, now, you know, S9s are struggling. And so, you know, you have to maximize the value you get out of this infrastructure in the two-year window of which it's you know considered state-of-the-art um, and that's another thing that we see an overlap between blockchain and ai
2: Hmm,
1: that's really interesting i could that's probably a whole other episode in itself is trying to discuss the the linkage between hardware architectures and the software that run on them and then how you figure out right how to maximize that
3: yeah, because it 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 does it's not like your PC. I mean I think my PC's well I just got a new one, but the one I had before that was, you know, eight years old. Eight year old GPU is antique. Eight year old mining <laughs> is, doesn't is exist,
1: almost <laughs>
3: <laughs> right. So that it's a whole it's you know it's make the most while you have it kind of game.
1: All right, uh did you have anything else here? no all right and I, I really appreciate you coming on and kind of uh, chatting with us about this stuff it's, it's, it's quite fascinating to dig in on this side of the conversation which you don't hear much of so uh, mm-hmm. thanks, for, thanks for coming on and maybe we can have you back to dive into more stuff
3: sounds great thanks everybody
2: thank you